Starting there with Isaiah 65, Lord willing, I will preach on Isaiah 66 this evening, so we'll get a kind of a back-to-back sermon there. Uh, But Isaiah 65 is one of the Christmas uh, portions of Isaiah. Give your attention to it. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens, and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. These say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. Your iniquities and the infirmities of your fathers together, saith the Lord. Your fathers and you, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills, therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for the herds to lie down in, for my people that have sought me. But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, ye did not answer. When I spake, ye did not hear. But did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit." And ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. 
For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Amen. And from Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, even though he is Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors till the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Amen. Then from Matthew's Gospel. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus." For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. There are times when you can read things fast and you get the gist of what's going on. Maybe you're in a hurry. But there are also times where you must read slowly in order to grasp anything that's going on. Ladies, you might experience this as you pull out a recipe that you've used many times and you just skim through it to make sure you got the gist and you cook it all over again. But if it's a new recipe, you look at it much more slowly. Now, the Bible falls into both of those categories at once. What that really means is you can read the Bible quickly and get the gist. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a place for it. But it shouldn't be the only way you read it. Because there are times when you ought to read it slowly. 
especially the more difficult parts, in order to have any understanding at all. Now, as an encouragement for the new year, I want you to change the way you've traditionally read through the Bible. Right? Maybe you're one of those people that just reads a couple, three, four, five verses a day. Read a chapter a day. Maybe you're one of those people who uh, is just obsessed with reading through the Bible in a year and you have to read four, five, or six chapters a day as if the Bible tells us to read it through in a year and there's some holiness measured by that. Slow down. Read a little differently. If you read more for quantity, again, slow down and read for quality. If you read slower for quality, speed up some and get some quantity in your life. Both are fine and need to be balanced. Children, I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this as well. You quick read things that are easy. You know how as you progress in school, books get harder, right? You can read older books that used to take you a while, quite quickly now, but as you move through school, you slow down some. The birth narratives of Christ, they can be read fast, but when you read them slowly, maybe you notice something you haven't before. Perhaps something like this, as we read in Matthew 1, that Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit and then named him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, and both of these events together are a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14, which is quoted there, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. If you go back and read the context around that verse in Isaiah 7, it has nothing to do with the name Jesus. It has nothing to do with, more narrowly speaking, the forgiveness of sins. But the prophet, I mean, the, the gospel writer says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this naming of Jesus, giving birth of Jesus, that he would save his people from their sins, was done that it might fulfill, then he quotes Isaiah 7.14. There's, again, no mention of saving his people from their sins, but Matthew wants you to know, indeed the Holy Spirit through him wants you to know, that Jesus' conception and his name and his work together fulfill Isaiah 7.14. Right? It's kind of hard for us to understand, but let me tell you, if there's anybody you want to take their word on how to interpret the Old Testament, it's the people writing the New Testament, quoting it and understanding it under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a few things to think about this morning. The first is this. How do the New Testament writers see Old Testament prophecies or passages fulfilled? All right, that's just a question I want you to take with you because they were guided by the Spirit in applying Old Testament texts to New Testament realities, so we should listen to them. If you have a Bible that has references in the margin and you see those little letters pop up as you're reading through the text, see what the references are. See where they come from in the Old Testament. There are even translations like the New American Standard. As much as I don't really love it, it does have some cool features. Uh, one of which is it puts all of the Old Testament quotes that are in the New Testament in all caps. So you know when you're reading it right off that it's coming from the Old Testament. Again, this is something that we need to think about. How do the New Testament writers see Old Testament prophecies fulfilled? So far, we've talked about slowing down or speeding up when we read. 
And when you do that, in the New Testament especially, notice how they apply or interpret the Old Testament. Now, if Matthew 1, 18-25, opens our eyes to how the Old Testament prophets were used, how about how Paul views the Old Testament era in Galatians 4? He describes it as a time beneath tutors and governors, almost like someone with their hand on your head. They're training you. A time when we were children and in bondage under the elements of the world. A time when we were servants rather than sons. Now, there are times when the Old Testament era is exalted to a great height. The Old Testament itself does that, telling you of the wonders of being in communion with God, even in the Old Testament era, and rightly so. You could probably find a place in the New Testament where it exalts what we call the Old Testament as well. And yet, however lofty that view might be, compared to the age of Christ's coming and giving of his Spirit, the Old Testament is simply a stand-in until the better thing arrives. As a matter of comparison, based on the way Paul is speaking, the Old Testament is not plan A, and in the New Testament, plan B. The Old Testament was intentionally temporary, that doesn't mean unimportant, in order that once the fullness of time had arrived, Galatians 4, God would send forth his Son. That would happen at the time appointed by the Father and no other time. As we reflected on it last Lord's Day evening on Christmas Eve, thinking from Titus 3, there was nothing outside of God forcing the incarnation of Christ. It was his free choice, his selection, his knowledge of the fullness of time that he might display his kindness and love towards man. Now, Paul roots this transition in Galatians. This is where we get to Christmas a little more specifically. Paul roots this transition in Galatians in the sending forth of God's Son to redeem those under the law and make them God's sons through adoption and the giving of the Spirit. And as if that wasn't enough, also to make us heirs of God through Christ. That's just one of those phrases that stops you in your tracks, isn't it? Heirs of God. Now, you know what an heir is, right? It's someone who is destined to receive an inheritance. For the Christian, the inheritance comes from God. God is the one who is in charge of your inheritance as Christians. An inheritance that has been achieved by God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can't get any better than that. No matter what the Colossians might have thought. Those of you who are in adult Sunday school will get that, or those of you who have listened to it. Now, since I've mentioned to you that you need to read the Bible slowly sometimes, but it's also okay to read it quickly, and I've told you to pay attention to how the New Testament writers speak of the Old Testament, the final thing where we'll spend the rest of our time is meditating on Isaiah 65 and how the Old Testament describes the New Testament. Right? So that's three things, right? Changing your reading speed. Thinking about how the New Testament talks about the Old, now we're going to think about how the Old Testament talks about the New. And what I have primarily in view is verses 17 through 25, if you have your uh, Bible open. Uh, but if you're looking at the page, it's near the bottom where he begins to speak of, uh, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, let me give an explanation of this text. 
Calvin, yes, that one, takes the view that the new heavens and earth referred to here applies to the, quote, remarkable change of affairs, close quote, that the church experiences in light of Christ's incarnation. So this description of the new heavens and the new earth, he says, is a remarkable change of affairs and the prophets choosing words to describe how much greater the age is under Christ than the age was before. He says as well that the church shall appear to gain new life and to dwell in a new world. Now, this might sound foreign to you for a moment, but listen to how Paul says some of this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He's not talking about at death. He's talking about in this life. Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10 says, Seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, put on the new man. Colossians 3, 3. Your life is hidden with Christ, present tense, in God. That exchange between heaven and earth, mystery though it be. Romans 6, 4, that we should walk in newness of life. That's just a few, but there are more. And Calvin goes on to say this about this passage. These are exaggerated modes of expression. But the greatness of such a blessing, which was to be manifested at the coming of Christ, could not be described in any other way. Nor does he mean only the first coming, but the whole reign of Christ, which must be extended as far as to the last coming. Let me paraphrase that. These words in Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 25, are exaggerated words. There's no other way to describe it. It describes what began with the coming of Christ and will continue and culminate in his second coming. Now, you may be tempted to say that the text says new heavens and new earth, and that is clearly after Christ's second coming. Well, that's one reason I read you Calvin, because he doesn't take it that way. He's not the only one. And it is true that the fullness of these things come at Christ's second coming. But the way that Isaiah describes this blessed condition, I would say, reveals that it's more like the way Paul speaks about the current state of Christians than it is about Christ talking about life after the judgment. I'm going to give you a few arguments from within the text. One, why do I say this does not apply strictly to heaven? The first reason, the text speaks of infants living only a few days, being no more, nor an old man dying early, for they will die young at a hundred. Does anyone die in the eternal state? In heaven, more specifically, does anyone die? No. Are there sinners in heaven? No. But sinners are described in the passage. The second thing, Isaiah talks about building houses and planting vineyards and eating. Now, there is debate over what we do in heaven. I get that, right? Maybe you're one of those people who believes that you'll be building and eating in heaven. More power to you. I think that's wrong, but that's another point, I believe, in my favor. The third 
He compares the life of the people of God in these blessings as being as long as the life of a tree. Now, trees live a long time, right, children? But they die. Do people die in the way the trees die after the second coming of Christ? No. The fourth one, and I believe this is the, uh, the clearest one that shows that it's not ultimately or exclusively about the eternal state, is prayer is described in the text. And God's answering of those prayers. I don't know about you, but I don't think that we'll have any need to pray in heaven, right? In the eternal state. Now, there are arguably passages that frame the new heavens and new earth after the coming of Christ. But there are also passages like this that show the effects of that new life breaking into the current age. Paul calls Christians new creations, new creatures. A more literal reading of the Greek some like to point out is that if any man is in Christ, he is new creation. Not a new creation. He is or he is in it. Right? That kind of explanation. There are passages like this that show the effects of that new life breaking into the current age in anticipation of the age that is to come following Christ's second coming. What sense would it make to describe eternal life following Christ's second coming as being one where children will die when they're 100? Or that sinners will be there? Because we won't age in heaven, and there are only the perfected elect there. And then to promise people who had built and not inhabited, planted and not eaten, that they would build and inhabit their own buildings, plant and eat their own vineyards, if they'd never actually do it. If you compare Isaiah 65 and 66 with Isaiah 1, you actually have some of the curses pronounced in Isaiah 61 or Isaiah 1 being reversed in these two chapters of Isaiah 65 and 66. Or why would God promise them that their prayers would be answered in a time when prayer is no longer a thing? Children, you won't have a need to pray in heaven because you will not be able to take your eyes off the glory of God. It will be present, not just desired. Over and over again in Isaiah, the people are asking why God is not answering them. And he tells them, of course, it's their sin. But he also promises, as he does here, a time of renewal when they will be changed and he will answer. So again, remember the things that we've rehearsed, the three things, reading the Bible at different speeds, reading the New Testament with an understanding of how they speak of the old, and also how the old speaks of the new, the time in which we live. But why is this important and what does it have to do with Christians? Well, it is important because the first coming of Christ brings these promises to the people of God. The first coming of Christ brings these promises to the people of God and assures that these are the types of blessings that they can expect to live under his rule until he comes again. And at that point, the shadows of blessing will give way to even greater blessings. Now, there is tension that we must point out in the text. Calvin does this as well. There are elements about this passage that are 
clearly indicative of normal life this side of glory, which I've already pointed at. And yet, there are elements of it that are meant to point you beyond this normal life, which reveals that even when your eyes fail to see these things happening, by faith, you know they are happening. I'll give you an example. When a Christian child dies, that child goes on to live forever, just as all those who trust in Christ will. And all those who don't trust in Christ will live, or we might say die, forever. There is a point at which earthly years matter no more, and our bodies will give way to the eternal state, whether for heaven or for hell. The second thing, this is actually the verse before, verse 17, where he mentions the new heavens and the new earth. The verse before that, where he speaks about troubles being forgotten. Troubles are never truly forgotten in this life, are they? But the Lord does teach you how to remember them differently. Which you could describe as forgetting the pain because of the greatness of the newness of life in Christ. The third thing, as much as God promises it to us, it is not always apparent to us that God answers when we call on him in prayer. Even though he promises to do so if we ask anything in his will. We do know that God always answers, but the truth is we don't always like the answer. And the fourth thing, the verse I haven't really mentioned in 17 to 25 yet, is about the wolf and the lamb feeding together, the lion eating straw like the ox. All sound commentators believe this points to two things. One, how profound salvation in the church is. That is to say, those who ought to be enemies, the wolf and the lamb, are made friends in Christ. The same thing is going on in Isaiah 11, where you have the description of the animals being together that should not be together with a child leading them. Who is that child? The second thing is a return to some estate like Eden. And that gives you this twofold reality, this tension in the text, as I want you to see. Now, let me give you another caveat. It is possible that this passage is describing a golden age that the church will experience this side of eternity. Many argue for this, even more argue against it. I'm certainly open to it, and it sounds wonderful. And yet, no matter how wonderful that estate may be, if it does come to be Fully in this life, it will not be as wonderful as when Christ comes. So what we can say for certain, this passage is not totally about this life as we experience it right now. Maybe it will be about the church in another time in the future before the coming of Christ. But it also cannot be totally about the future eternal state for all the reasons I mentioned above. Another thing is for certain. These things are had only in Christ. Only those in Christ go to the holy mountain of the Lord, which we know for certain is the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly one. Read the book of Hebrews and Revelation. Revelation begins with an earthly Jerusalem. It's destroyed throughout the book. And at the end of Revelation, you have the coming down of the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We know the Bible teaches that. 
The earthly Jerusalem gave way to the heavenly, and it is Christ Jesus who brought this about. This time does not begin in the future, friends. It began in the past, at the time appointed by the Father for the Son, who, sent to, who was sent to come forth and be born of a woman to redeem us from servanthood to sonship. Or as Christ says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Paul echoes this in Galatians 4. This work was jump-started and grounded in Christ's birth, his work and his sending of his spirit. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. So what does it mean for you that you are living in this already present and not yet fully realized new heavens and new earth? First, you have been saved from your sins by Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary. The Savior who we remember on Christmas, just as we sang in that hymn, What Child Is This? is the Savior who bore the cross for me and you. Second, God promise you, promises you abundant life, not life that ends and then evaporates, not life that ends and then you end up in hell, but abundant, unending life. Third, more practically, you ought to build for the future with the expectation that you or your seed after you will inherit it because of God's blessing. As Isaiah says, you do not labor in vain. And the fourth thing God assures you of is his answering you even before you call. You know the verse in Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, you know it. If God knows the words of all men before they speak, how intimately does he know the words of his own that he has already begun to bless with heavenly life? To put it even more briefly, God fills his people with joy and hope because his son has been born. That joy changes the way you view pain, for the text promises no more weeping. That joy changes the way you view life, for even when you die, you live in the Lord. That hope changes the way you plan because you build with hope rather than fear. You have children with hope rather than fear. You pray with hope rather than doubt. All because the Savior was born. His name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Both the penalty of sin, which we're comfortable talking about, but also the effects of sin. The latter being that which Isaiah is at pains to tell you. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God.